Now, will you turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. Uh, I'm sure some of you are asking what happened to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to suspend our studies in 2 Corinthians for six weeks, and then we'll return. Uh, we're doing so because we there's another topic that we're concerned about right now. The elders feel this is a weakness within the elders and within the congregation as a whole. And since our desire is to teach the whole counsel of God and teach it in a balanced way, we want to uh, uh, take up another topic just for a brief period of time. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is, because if I do, you'll all say, oh, no, not that. And so I'm going to sneak up on you. You won't, you won't know until we're two-thirds of the way through the uh, study this morning. I'll, I'll hit you on your blind side. Genesis 12. Uh, I very often, in, in talking to men that are not yet Christians or those who don't know their way around the Scriptures very well, get the question, uh, get a question about the what appears to be the exclusiveness of the Old Testament. It would seem that God arbitrarily chose one nation to bless, and He bestowed great blessing upon the nation of Israel. And the question is, why? How odd of God, as the poem goes, to choose the Jews. Why would he pick out one nation and bless them? It doesn't seem fair. It's not equitable. What about the rest of the nations? Well, if you stop and think about it for a moment, it's even odd that, you, that God would choose any nation. But why the Jews? Now, when people ask that question... Uh, it causes me to think that they really have not read the scriptures. They've heard what other people have said about the Old Testament. Or if they have read the Old Testament, they haven't read it carefully. Because the whole point of the Old Testament is that God chose one nation and blessed them as a means of blessing all nations. What comes through very clear in the Old Testament is, is that God's love is international in its scope. It's universal in its outreach. God loves all nations. And the only reason he chose one nation is so he could, he could reach the rest of the world. The Old Testament is, is the story of that, of that redemption, what God did for Israel in order to reach the rest of the world. Now, uh, the Old Testament really has two histories, if you read it carefully. There's human history, and that's a, a sorry spectacle from beginning to end, one debacle after another. You don't have to read very far into Genesis to, you, and, until you see some of the problems the man has handling uh, life and things. He can't put things together. He can't, make, he can't put any meaning into his life. He can't make things happen the proper way. And it led to, to the fall, and it led to the great flood and the failure at, at Babel. And it all centers around one, one theme, making a name for oneself in Genesis 6. There are a, a, a group of tyrants who take the name sons of God, who consider themselves gods. And we're told that they, they made a name for themselves. They gained a certain measure of notoriety. Uh, and then you read on, and in Genesis 11, there's the story of the, of the little tower that, that the people at Babel made as a rallying point for the human race. 
which they built because they said we want to make a name for ourselves. Now, that's a constant theme through the opening chapters of Genesis, man trying to make something of his own life, make something happen so that his life will be meaningful and and, and, and rich and full, and and it never seems to happen. Alongside that human history is what the older Old Testament theologians used to call holy history. God's interventions at various times through history to straighten out the messes that, that man has made of his life. And the promise that someday a man is coming who will once for all set everything right. This is the man of promise that we've talked about so much here at, at Cole. The promise is first given in Genesis 3.15 and then reaffirmed a number of times through the Old Testament. A man is coming, the seed of the woman, who will set everything right. Now Genesis 12 is another one of these redemptive points in the history. One of these crises in human history in in which God intervenes and and sets things right and reaffirms that promise. It's the story of Abram, as he's called in the account, Abraham, as we know him. And though the story begins in chapter 12, properly it, 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 it begins back in chapter 10. There's a phrase in Genesis 12, 3 that, that's, the, that's the key to the way these chapters interrelate. In chapter 12, verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on the earth will be blessed through you. That same phrase has occurred, uh, is found in, in chapter 10, verse uh, 12. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So that phrase, the nations of the earth, ties together chapter 12 and chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 is the story of the distribution of the sons of Noah and their descendants after the flood. Now, this is a chapter that uh, is of great interest to people that, that are into history and love, love reading about history, and it puts everybody else to sleep. So I have to be very careful because I, I get intrigued by this, this, this chapter, and it just bores everyone else to death. And I don't want to do that to you, but I, but I want you to see what's happening here in chapter 10. We're told this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And then the descendants of these three men, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, are given. He leads off uh, with the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Terus, and other unpronounceable names that follow. They don't mean much to us, except for most of us, these are our our, uh, forefathers. We came from the descendants of... uh, of Japheth. Gomer gave his name to the Celts and the, and the Gauls. Magog, Medai to the Medes. Uh, Meshach, probably to the Russians, the, the city of Moscow, that name comes from Meshach. Tyrus from the Etruscans, the people that settled in Italy. And Ashkenaz to the Scythians. Ripheth probably gave his name to Europe and so forth. You can, we can, can trace these names back in history and and recognize them today as the Indo-European people that live north of the Fertile Crescent and to the east from, from Europe to the Indus Valley. These are the Japhethites, the sons of Japheth. There's a summary statement in, in, in verse 4, this, verse 5, excuse me. From these, the maritime peoples, that is, the people that live in the islands, 
spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with his own language. That's a summary of this genealogy of, of Japheth. And then in verse 6, the, the sons of Ham, their names are given. Cush, who became the father of the Ethiopians. Mitzrayim, from which the Egyptians came. Put, who founded uh, uh, the, the people of Lydia. And Canaan, whom we know about. Four principal shoots are described. Three are traced in some detail. The sons of Cush, whose names are, are given in verse 7 and following. Verse 13, Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, Canaan. And their names are given. And then we're told in, in verse 20 that these are the descendants of Ham by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. And these are the people that went to the south of the Fertile Crescent. And you've got a map in your bulletin. If you'll take it out and look at it, we'll need to refer to it from time to time. These are the people that settled in North Africa and in East Africa along the Red Sea. One branch went over into southern Mesopotamia and founded the great Babylonian civilizations, Assyria and Babylon, and others that settled in the southern part of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, just north of, of the Persian Gulf. And then last but not, not least, in verse 21, the sons of Shem. Now, it's the pattern in the book of Genesis to dismiss the less important elements of the story first, to get on to the main thing, which is to trace the line as it, the, the promised seed through uh, various groups. And since the seed comes through the line of Shem, the Semitic people, the, the sons of Shem are taken up last, and their names are given down to this, this man who's known as Peleg in verse 25. Two sons were born to Eber. Eber gave his name to the Hebrews. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. And then if you read on into chapter 11, 11 the descendants of Peleg are given on down to Abraham. That's what leads us into, into chapter 12. But in chapter 10, the genealogy of this son is halted at this point because something very significant happened during the lifetime of Peleg, or probably when he was born, because he was given a name to commemorate this event. He was called Peleg, the author tells us, because in his lifetime, the earth was divided or disunified. Now you say, what, what happened? Maybe this is when the continents drifted apart. Or we don't know what happened. Well, we do know, because chapter 11 tells us. The story of the dispersion at Babel took place. Peleg was a, apparently a small child or was born during this time or immediately after the great dispersion. Another one of these critical points in the history of mankind. Now, what happened was this. Noah and his uh, sons and their, their families migrated from Mount Ararat, which is up in the eastern part of what we call Turkey today, just a little bit to the west of Lake Van. You can see that on your map. They migrated down into the southern part of Mesopotamia, just north of the Persian Gulf, and uh, they built a city down there. And they built a tower, a little ziggurat, because they said, we, we don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. We will make a name for ourselves. And uh, God came down and looked at their little ziggurat. And he said, there's no end to what evil these people will do if, if they stay together. People in mass are capable of much greater evil than individuals. And as far as God is concerned, collective apostasy is far worse than, than disunity. And so he, he scattered them by confusing their language. Someone said, hand me a brick, and it came out gobbledygook and... And the other workmen couldn't understand what he was saying. And, 
And they couldn't work together. They couldn't accomplish any projects. And so they scattered all over the earth by their clans. The Japhethites moved north and settled from India to, to Europe. The, the, the Hamites went to the south, North Africa, East Africa, and the southern part of Mesopotamia. And the Semites settled right in the middle, right along the Fertile Crescent in the northern part of Mesopotamia into Aramea and down into the land of, of Canaan. They scattered all over that, that region, each by their clans, each by their tribes, each by their languages, all separated from one another, all without the light. They didn't know God. Enter Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, and as the Lord had appeared to Abram in, in, his, in his own country prior to chapter 12, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. If you look at your map, just north of the Persian Gulf, you'll see in large dark bow prints Sumer, and just a little bit below Sumer, the city of Ur, you are. That was uh, Abraham's hometown. A fellow by the name of Woolley back in the late 20s and early 30s excavated Ur down to the levels of Abraham's time, about 2000 B.C. And he found a city that would be comparable today to the city of New York. Highly sophisticated, very cultured, highly educated people writing beautiful literature, doing, uh, making uh, lovely vases and statuary. Very... Uh, very uh, highly cultured people. Now, we're accustomed to think of Abraham. You know, because of my upbringing as a child, I always think of Abraham as a Sunday school superintendent in a bathrobe. <laughs> but that's not Abraham. He's a very wealthy man, very cultured man, highly educated man, very gifted, but an idolater. He was a moon worshiper, living in one of the darkest places on the face of the earth. Nothing but despair there. And God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, Follow me to a land that I will show you. Now, we know what it was. We know it was the land of Canaan. But Abraham didn't know. He didn't have the slightest idea. In faith, he followed the Lord up through the Fertile Crescent, up to the city of Haran, just south of Mitanni. If you look right in the middle of the map, you'll see in bold print Mitanni. Haran is just, just below Lived there for a while till his father died, and then he migrated on down through Phoenicia into Palestine. The rest of the chapter tells about his journeys up and down Palestine with his little tent and his altar, living in the city of Shechem, and then on down to uh, the region between Bethel and, and Ai, and then on down to Beersheba, pitching his tent, building his little altar, calling upon the name of the Lord. And the author makes a very significant comment the Canaanite was then in the land. Canaanites were some of the some of the most desperately unhappy people on the face of the earth. We're inclined to think of Canaanites as just extremely wicked people, and they were that. But more importantly, they were very, very unhappy. I, I spent a whole year, if you can imagine anybody doing something like this, I spent a whole year reading Canaanite literature. It's a downer, believe me. It's depressing. There, there, there's one story of a, a, a heroic figure in Canaanite mythology. His name is Akat. He's sort of the uh, Mark Gastineau of the second millennium B.C. 
uh, tough, macho, rugged sort of fellow. He has this um, uh, ox uh, horn bow that only he can can pull. And there's this lovely young lady in the story. Her name is a knot. She's a goddess. And she comes to a cot and she says, I, I, I want your bow. And he says, you can't have my bow. You can't even draw it. You're just a girl. And she says, no, I can draw it. I'm a goddess. I want your bow. He says, you can't have my bow. And she says, I'll give you immortality like Baal. You'll count your years with Baal. And Baal was, of course, the god of the Canaanites, and he lived forever in their mythology. Our cot laughs. He says, you've got to be kidding. Whose leg are you pulling? He says, they will, pour past, they will pour plaster on my pate. That is, I will get bald like everybody else. And I, I will die the death of every man. Woe is me. Dying, I shall die. He uses precisely the same phrase that you have in Genesis 3. Right down to the, the exact grammatical forms. Dying, I shall die, he says. Every bit of that literature is filled with the dread of death, the uncertainty of the future. The Egyptians write about uh, their despair. They cry out for the shepherd. Where is the shepherd, they say, that, that shall come? People were miserable, unsatisfied, filled with unsatisfied longings. Canaan was one of the darkest places on the face of the earth. And God called Abraham to that place. He gave him a great promise in verse 2. He says, I'll make you a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. He says, first of all, I'll make a great nation out of you. We know that's true. The Jewish people today trace their origins back to Abraham. He was their father. He made, as a matter of fact, he made a number of great nations of Abraham. But the greatest is the nation of Israel. He says, I will bless you. I will enrich you. God enriched Abraham with flocks and herds and with many children, and he had many material blessings. But more than that, he enriched Abraham spiritually. Hebrews says that Abraham wasn't content with a city that, that man made. He was looking for a city that has foundations that God has made. He knew that the greater blessings were the spiritual blessings of a, of a life set free from guilt and hope for the future. Relief for the fear of death. Power for living life now. Abraham had all those things. He was immeasurably blessed. And God says, I'll make your name great. That's in contrast to the efforts of people throughout history to make a name for themselves. It's a deliberate contrast. God is saying, you men don't have to work yourself to death to make something out of yourself. You don't have to become a workaholic. I'll make something out of you. That's the point. I'll make you a man. I'll make your name great. So that, uh, the translations are not always clear here, but the syntax is very clear. So that you will be a blessing. In other words, the purpose of all this blessing is not merely so that Abraham can be blessed, but so that he can become a channel of blessing to others. Now, if you notice, looking back at your map, you'll see that the cross-hatched section, which represents the Fertile Crescent, moves through the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, up through what was ancient Aramea, Aram-Naharayim, 
And then on down through Phoenicia and Palestine on, on, on into Egypt. All of the trade routes at that time ran through the Fertile Crescent. If you lived in Egypt and you wanted to go to Babylonia, you didn't travel across the desert, though there is a road there, because that's all, uh, that's, that's the Arabian Desert. No one with any sense would travel across there. You went through the Fertile Crescent, which means you had to go right through Canaan. If you lived in what today is Turkey or in Asia Minor and you had to travel to Egypt, you had to, to go right along the coast through the land of Canaan. If you were a mariner and you were traveling from Turkey, what today is Turkey, to Egypt, you didn't go across the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't have ships that were that seaworthy. You hugged the coast, so you had to come right along, right alongside the coast of Canaan. God chose Canaan not because it was the most beautiful place on the, first, on the face of the earth, but because it was the most strategic place. It was the place where Abram could best bless the nations. As the traveling salesmen, merchants, and, and others, the representatives of these nations traveled through the land of Canaan, they came in contact with this giant of a man, this, this godly man, who wherever he went, pitched his tent, put up his altar, and called upon the name of the Lord. You see, Abram was blessed so he could bless the nations. We have no idea how many people came in contact with Abram through those years whose lives were enriched. Some were blessed because they blessed Abram. See, the, the, this is the condition. If you bless Abram, if you take what he has to say and, and what he is seriously, if you give weight to his message then you'll be blessed. You'll be enriched like Abram was. Your guilt will be uh, assuaged. Your, your dread of the future will be taken away. See? You'll be blessed like Abram. But if you curse him, and, and, and the author uses two different words here for curse. The first means to take lightly. If you take him lightly, if you dismiss his message, then you'll be left sterile, just as sterile as when you came. You'll go away full of unsatisfied longings. Uh, the, the author tells us something of the, the way in which Abram went, went about blessing the nations. Verse 4, Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. That's when most of us uh, get ready to retire. He was just getting started. Took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. Abram was a very wealthy man by this time. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. Canaanites built their Baal temples under these great oaks. It's a terebinth, a huge oak, under which they, they built their little Baal sanctuaries right by the site of a Baal-worshipping temple. Abram put up his tent, and we're told that the Canaanites were then in the land, but the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent from Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then he traveled on down into the Negev, the desert to the south. You see, the rest of Genesis describes his journeys up and down the land of Canaan and wherever he went. He pitched his little tent, he drove the pegs in the ground and he put that thing up and then he gathered up some rocks and he built a little rough altar and, 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 and he sacrificed on that altar as symbolic of the time when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world picture of, of the man of promise who was to come 
and he called upon the name of the Lord. He expressed his needs in prayer. He was, a, he was a prayerful man, a dependent man, a worshipful man. And wherever he went, he blessed the world. The only time it's recorded in Genesis that he failed to bless the world is when he went down to Egypt. And he, he actually was more of a curse than a blessing down there. And, and, and significantly, the thing that's omitted while he was in Egypt is his little altar. He didn't build an altar while he was there. He didn't call upon the name of the Lord. But as long as he built his altar... And as long as he called upon the name of the Lord, he was a blessing to the nations who took him seriously. You see, Abraham had a missionary mandate. His mission was to bless the nations. The reason God blessed him is so all the nations of the earth could be touched and reached with the love of Christ. And the rest of the, of, of, of the Old Testament is simply an unfolding of that missionary mandate. The way God intended to use the nation of Israel, the people of God, to touch the nations around them. For example, turn, turn to Psalm 67. Very unremarkable little psalm, one that I've rarely heard anybody preach on. One that you read and think, well, there isn't much there. We'll move on to, chapter, to Psalm 68. But it's a very significant little psalm in terms of, of the missionary outlook of the Old Testament. Starts with uh, the uh, Aaronic blessing. Aaron and his sons were given a special blessing which they were to bestow upon the nation of Israel. That's given in number six. The psalm begins with that Aaronic blessing with a very significant change. The Aaronic blessing says, let Jehovah be gracious to us. Let Yahweh be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. The psalmist doesn't use Israel's name for God. He uses the Gentiles' name for God, Elohim. May God, the generic name for God, the name that the Gentiles, the pagan nations used. May God be gracious to us, us Israelites, and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on earth, and your salvation among all nations. Why would God bless Israel? So the rest of the nations will be blessed. May the people praise you, O God. That is, the people out there, those that are far off, those that don't know you. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule justly, and you guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. He says, come on, all you nations, let's hear it. Praise God. Because of what he has done for Israel. Then, he says, the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear Him. Now, fear in the Old Testament doesn't mean terror. It doesn't mean dread. It's used for worship. You see, it was God's intention to give and give and give and give and give to Israel so they, in turn, could share that blessing with the rest of the world. It was not for them only. The blessing given to them was the means by which the whole world was to be blessed. That's the missionary mandate of the Old Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, you have exactly the same thing. At the very beginning, the, the, the first actions of the church were in this direction. I think that's the whole point of the story of the event that happened on the day of Pentecost. We get all tied into knots over the meaning of tongues and miss the whole point of that passage. 
Do you remember what happened? The early church, the first Christians, were gathered in, the, in, in Solomon's porch in the temple. And first they heard a, a great wind, which was a symbol of the coming of the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Spirit. So he said a symbol. In Greek, the word for wind is precisely the same word as the word for spirit. Very apt symbol. They heard the sound, and they realized that this represent the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then they saw a great flame, which divided into smaller flames, which were then distributed over the heads of all the, all the Christians that were gathered there that day, as an indication that every Christian was indwelt by that spirit that was symbolized by that great wind. And then they began to speak in other languages. Now, it was not gobbledygook. It was not angel talk. It wasn't a heavenly language. They spoke in known foreign languages because we're told in verse uh, 5 of chapter 2 that they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Pentecost was one of those mandatory feasts where Jewish men were required to attend. And they had come from all over the world to attend that feast. When they heard this sound, that is, the early Christians speaking in other tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment. This is out in the open. They weren't in the upper room. They were in Solomon's portico. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. The Greek word is dialecto, dialects. We get that word dialects from it. Utterly amazed, they said, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Now, all of these Jews understood Aramaic. The disciples were all Galileans. Judas was the only uh, Judean in the group. They're all Galileans, and they all spoke Aramaic. They could have spoken in Aramaic. They could have evangelized the Jews that were in Jerusalem on that particular occasion by speaking in the language that was common to all of them. They all spoke Aramaic. Because the Bible, the Old Testament, had been translated into Aramaic. But they didn't speak in Aramaic. They spoke in the languages of the people. And these Jews were saying, who came from all over the world, they're talking our language. How, how is it, he says in verse 8, that each one of us hears them in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. These are all folks that lived in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Judea, which would be the Holy Land. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. These are all regions in what today would be Turkey. Egypt and the parts of, of uh, Libya near Cyrene. It's North Africa. Visitors from Rome. That would be Europe, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretes and Arabs, people that live from the Red Sea up to the Euphrates. We hear them declaring the wonders of God that is preaching the gospel in our own language. What does this mean? Peter goes on to explain what it means. He said, this is what, this is what uh, Joel was talking about in the Old Testament. When he says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters, that is Israel's sons and daughters, will prophesy. Your young men will see dreams. Your, old men will, uh, your, old, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, that is Israel, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they will prophesy. That is, they will preach the gospel. I will show wonders in the heaven above and so forth. And in verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the point? Well, Joel is saying, well, one of these days the Spirit's going to be poured out on my people again, these apostate people. 
who, who have enjoyed the blessings of God and have prostituted them, used them only for themselves, have not passed them on to other people. Someday the Spirit of God will be poured out on these people and they will begin to preach the gospel and everyone will hear it. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, Israel will be returned to her missionary status again. And these people would go back to these lands, to Media, to the land of the Elamites, to Phrygia, Pamphylia, Galatia, and they would begin to preach the gospel to people that had never heard it before, and Israel would be restored to her proper place in God's scheme of things. You see, that's the point. And they got it. They said, well, what do we do? Jesus said, or Peter said, look, this is another one of those critical points in history, another one of these human debacles. God sent the man of promise, and you crucified him. But once again, God intervened. He straightened out the mess that you made. He raised him from the dead. Now you need to repent. Change your mind about Jesus. And something will happen, he says. Down in uh, verse 38, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we have. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. You go to the Gentiles. You go back to your country, see. Having received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to preach to them. Because Christ died, not for us, as John puts it, for the sins of the whole world. It can't dead end in us. We can't... You see, this is for us. We are the seed of Abraham. The mandate was given to Israel. It's handed over to the church. Galatians 3.29 makes it very clear that we are the seed of Abraham and we have the same mandate that was given to Abraham. We cannot just receive the grace of God without passing it on. It's a prostitution of the very purpose for which God gave it. And you say, oh, no, not evangelism. That's what he was going to talk about. I can't even remember the four laws. How can I evangelize? That's for somebody else. That's for people who have the gift of gab. That's someone who has read uh, books on apologetics. That's not for me. I'm not very verbal. I, I don't communicate very well. Let me ask you a question. Where in Genesis 12 does it say anything about Abraham's verbal witness? Unless you retranslate uh, one of the phrases where it says, in my translation, Abraham called upon the Lord, as Luther did. Luther retranslated that. Abram preached in the name of the Lord, but he had to distort the Hebrew text in order to do it. This is an idiom for prayer and worship. Unless you change the meaning of that phrase, there isn't one mention of what Abram said. You know what we learn from Genesis 12? It's that witness grows out of worship. Yeah, we, we get all tied into knots over techniques. And there's nothing wrong with using the four laws to express the gospel. It's a good outline of the gospel. There's nothing wrong with learning a few ways to, to get into a conversation about spiritual things. But that's not what, what witness is intended to be. Authentic witness grows out of worship. It's when we know God. 
that we can talk about him without the words ringing hollow. You ever had the experience of trying to tell what great things God has done for you and it just doesn't ring true to you or to the person you're sharing it with? This is words, God words, made up words. It doesn't have any impact on anybody and you know it because there's no relationship there. And we have all these standoffish techniques that we use, you know, bumper stickers that uh, warn drivers of uh, danger due to the rapture and gospel blimps and Turner Burn t-shirts and huge leather Bibles that we carry and tracks that we leave for waitresses in lieu of a tip. And, uh, and we put people off and they're derisive. And believe me, it is richly earned, deserved. Because the, the only valid witness, the only authentic witness comes out of relationship. When you know God, you don't need to worry about what you're going to say. As Jesus said to the disciples, it will be given you in that hour who, what you shall say. You don't have to worry about it. And we need to have the gospel straight. But what we say will be appropriate because it, it comes out of a full life. We have taken in the grace of God and it simply flows out of us. It's what Jesus described as rivers of living water that flow out of you when you know what it is to walk with God. That's all Abram did. He just walked with God. He worshipped at his altar. He reminded himself of the one who was coming to take away the sin of the world. He reflected upon that fact. He gave thanks for it. And he depended upon God. He centered his life on the Lord. And when it's real, no one can take it away from you. They can't shake you. The reason kids go off to college and get wiped out is not because someone comes up with an argument that no one ever thought of before. What happens is that they don't have the real thing when they go. I always think of the man born blind, you know. Jesus uh, healed him, gave him back his sight, and he appears in front of the Sanhedrin. He said, Jesus didn't do that. He's a sinner. The guy says, I don't know who he is. All I know is that once I was blind, and now I see. I've seen more Christian college students go through universities, and they get a little bit baffled and a little bit bewildered about what's going on. And the attacks upon the scripture, but their attitude is, I don't have all the answers, but one thing I know, once I was filled with guilt, no I'm not. Once I was afraid of death, and no I'm not. Once I had no power to overcome evil uh, habits in my life, but now I do, because they have the real thing. And when we have the real thing, our witness is authentic. We begin to bless people. So we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't focus on witness. We need to focus on God and on worship and knowing Him and loving Him. And the result will be a, a, a stream of living water that slacks the thirst of others, you see, that blesses others wherever we go. Did you ever try to bless people? You just grit your teeth and decide to bless them. And it always comes out all wrong. It's inappropriate. It's not the right words. The thing that strikes me about Jesus' witness is how offbeat it was. You know, if you just read through the Gospels, he never says what you think he's going to say. He's always coming in from some oblique angle that no one ever anticipates. Well, how did he do that? Did he sit down and think of some possible answer for every conceivable question he was going to be asked? No. He just walked with the Father. And he had such a full and rich life and such a deep and intimate knowledge of God that whenever he spoke, it was just the right thing at the right time. And that, I believe, is the secret of effective witness. Witness grows out of worship.
Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 51. He said, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Don't you long for that? Don't you want to be able to say the right thing at the right time without putting your foot in your mouth when someone is weary? They want to be helped? How, how do you do that? Well, the very next verse says, The Lord God has opened my ears so I can hear as a disciple. When we take the time to get to know God, read His Word so we can know Him, and express our dependence upon Him in prayer, and we practice the presence of Christ through the day, then somehow the right words come at the right time. That's what Jesus called those rivers of living water that flow out of you when you're walking with God and you're dependent upon His Spirit. Uh, this last uh, Christmas season, I got a, received a Christmas card from a friend of mine, someone I haven't heard from in years, and I was just delighted to hear from him. His name is Don McLean. He lives over in Oregon now. He's a contractor and has a very effective discipling ministry with, with men there. When I first met Don, he was the uh, principal of Menlo Atherton High School in Menlo Park, California. Uh, not a Christian, though a very religious man. And uh, he was principal of one of the most difficult high schools in the Bay Area. A number of race riots there. Real tough kids. A lot of money in that area. His kids had everything. And they were jaded, disillusioned, and troublemakers. Many of them were because they were bored. Don didn't know what to do. About that time, Young Life came to Menlo Atherton High School. And a fellow who was the basketball coach there at MA High School, Dick Weaver, started a Young Life Club. And a number of these kids, and, and, and many of them were the instigators of the race riots, met the Lord. Uh, not churched kids at all. Uh, they came to know God, and their lives began to change. None of them were scholars, but they began to make better grades. And if they were having trouble with their grades, they go talk to the counselor. Their attitudes changed. Instead of starting fights out on the school ground, they, they tried to, to calm things down and, and keep peace. And Dick faithfully met with these guys and taught them the word and taught them to walk with God. And, and Don McLean watched these kids over a period of, of, of an entire year and saw their lives change right in front of his eyes. And one day he was telling me that, that a student came into his to his office, one of the toughest kids in school. He's had nothing but trouble with this kid all through junior high and high school. He's now a senior in MA High School. And he was talking to Don about some event that had taken place the day before. And Don noticed the change in his life. And as he walked out the door, this kid turned and he, and he looked at him and said, Mr. McLean, uh, he said, I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. And so do I. And Don said that was the turning point in his life, that he realized he did not have what that student had. Despite his religion, he didn't know God. Now, that's the kind of words, I think, that our Lord puts in our mouth when we know him. Witness grows out of worship. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you've, you've taken away from us the burden of having to, to win the world. We thank you that that's your concern. And it's your responsibility to get us to the right place at the right time. We can, we can trust you to put us in the place uh, of most strategic uh, ministry 
and influence. And we thank you for the, the rich blessings that we've experienced from you. You're the giver of every good and perfect gift. We've received so much, and we thank you for that. And, and we want to be uh, agents of reconciliation. We want you to use us to draw others into the same relationship with you so that they, too, can be, be blessed and enriched in their lives. Use us, Lord. Help us to know you so that, that we can make you known. Help us to love you so we can express by our actions and by our words the love of Christ. Help us to learn from you so we'll have the wisdom that we need to speak a word in season to those that are weary around us, the hurting, the lost. We ask that we would learn to worship you and to walk with you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.